Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, have you heard the one about the -the glow-in-the-dark bunnies? It's not a joke. It was an experiment in genetic manipulation carried out in 2013. The goal was to improve treatments for life-threatening illnesses. Do we really want to know what scientists are up to now to further that exploration? Maybe not. Most of us are in denial anyway. That's where Nathaniel Rich comes in. He's a writer-at-large for the New York Times Magazine and the author of Second Nature, Scenes from a World Remade. It's a collection of essays on the damage humans have done to the Earth and how we'll navigate that going forward. The topics include the toxic materials that course through our bloodstreams now, a legacy of the proliferation of chemicals and chemical dumping, the relative powerlessness of environmental regulators, and a new normal marked by blurred lines between the natural and artificial worlds. Rich also explores efforts to re-engineer natural systems. These endeavors attempt to accommodate our habituated living situations, but can do further damage. If bringing back the woolly mammoth and the passenger pigeon will help save the planet, great. But when humans play God, things tend to go wrong. Someday soon, when you wonder if the chicken in that sandwich you're eating came from a test tube, or you're being asked to choose between a red and a blue pill, you may remember this moment. Mr. Rich had this conversation with author and professor Claire Vey Watkins. Town Hall Seattle presented their discussion on April 5th, where Harmon introduced the event Candace Wilkinson Davis moderated the Q&A. Novelist and essayist Nathaniel Rich is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine, as well as a regular contributor to the Atlantic, Harper's, and New York Review of Books. His novels include 2008's The Mayor's Tongue, Odds Against Tomorrow from 2013, and King Zeno from 2018. He's the author of book-length nonfiction as well, including 2005's San Francisco Noir, the city in film noir from 1940 to the present. He's also the author of 2019's Losing Earth, A Recent History, which had its genesis in a total edition of the New York Times Magazine, what we'd now call a takeover. Maybe we called it then too, and I just was out of the loop. At any rate, you can find that article vividly illustrated on the New York Times website. The book-length edition was a finalist for the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Award and a winner of awards from the Society of Environmental Journalists and the American Institute of Physics. Claire Vey Watkins teaches creative writing at University of California, Irvine. She's the author of the novel Gold Fame Citrus from 2015 and the short story collection Battleborn, published in 2012, which won the Story Prize, the Dylan Thomas Prize, the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award, and the Rosenthal Family Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Next up is a novel, I Love You But I've Chosen Darkness. Rich's book, Second Nature, Scenes from a World Remade, is the subject of tonight's discussion. Please join me in welcoming Claire Vey Watkins and Nathaniel Rich. Hello, Nat. Hi, Claire. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Weir and Claire. I'm so happy to have the chance to speak with you here. Um, I've been looking forward to this and love your work and, um, and feel that 
we have a lot to to discuss um, in ways in which our, our works inter work intersects. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations on Second Nature. It's amazing. It's really special to see your journalism all in one place. I've been following you for such a long time and admiring you and you've changed how I think for the better. I feel like I've been thinking with you for a long time. So it's nice that we could just like doom spiral together in um, like a pseudo public. This is like the perfect venue to talk about like the soul lag that you describe in Second Nature. Um, do you think it would be okay if we start there with, with yeah. that phenomenon that is kind of runs through all of these pieces here? Um, that are the idea that our souls haven't quite caught up with um, this um, nature lag, as you describe it. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm borrowing the idea from the novelist William Gibson, um, and you know, he has this this idea that's now sort of, I guess, commonplace that you know the future is here, but it it, it uh, it's not evenly distributed and and you know, I was struck when when reading him also about um, this idea of soul lag, the, the idea that um, you feel the way you feel when you travel somewhere and um, you arrive at, in in physical form and yet you feel like you're spiritually elsewhere, your you know, your your mind and your body haven't reunited and that it takes a certain amount of time to be, you know, yourself again. And um, and I feel like those two ideas sort of dovetail in this interesting way. Now, when we think about our relationship, you know, as, a, as individuals, as a species, as a culture to what we used to call the natural world, um, you know, we're living at this time when there's really nothing um, natural by any definition of the world of the word um, in nature, you know, every every square inch of land and, and, you know, cubic inch of the atmosphere has been reconfigured thanks to our our actions. Um, you know, usually recklessly um, and unintentionally, but but transformed nonetheless. And I think we're sort of having that, we've had that realization or we're having that realization um, now collectively. Um, and yet we don't fully accept it with our, with our bones. And so when we see, um, you know, we see images of, of kind of the future that's coming towards us. And, and I write about some of these in the book, you know, things like, uh, chicken that are made that's made in a test tube um, or um, species brought back from extinction or you know reconfiguring the coastline of Louisiana um, to our specification to, to protect populations and industry and all of that and and I think it it feels like these eerie visitations from this distant future but they're really reflections of where we are today and we haven't quite adjusted to it yet and um, you know, I feel that in your work as well. I mean, you, you know, in Goldframe Citrus, you're writing about a future time, but it still captures, I think, the feeling that one has today of, of just living on the brink and being on the edge of some new world that's coming for us that's, you know, both extremely threatening, but in some ways sort of wondrously weird as well. Mm -hmm. And we haven't adjusted. And so, so that's what I wanted to write about, really, is this eeriness, I think, one feels that you know, we've left an old world behind. Um, the world of our sort of romantic myths um, is gone, and we know we're hurtling towards something else in which our our 
our relationship with nature is going to be totally um, different and much more active um, and involved. And, and yet we're, we're really not comfortable with that idea yet. And so I think that a lot of, a lot of fascinating stories come out of the intersection of this, the, the past and, and this future. Yeah, totally. I mean, I felt this feeling, um, and I, I think I'm going to maybe assume that the others who we, we can't really see who are here listening um, have felt it too, that that's why they've, they've come. The feeling of like the unequal distribution of the consciousness that like this is the reality. And I think this it is, is it, in this country, my suspicion is that it comes from um, the, the decades of like very well-funded climate denial. So that there was this like binary debate for all of my coming of age. It was like, climate change is real. No, it's not more study needs, right? So there was this like tussle and, um, so that uh, we kind of didn't get to, we weren't allowed to feel any of the actual like emotional reality, which is like the areas between like hope and despair or yes, it's happening or no, it, it's not happening. And the um, sense that like um, at one point you say, well, I wonder what you think about this like half-baked theory I have going, which is like that, um, you know, like, you to to think about this today we still are kind of doing it in the context of that against denialism so that there can sometimes be a false sense of um we know what's going to happen right because scientists like the scientific community had to so emphatically insist like yes this is happening yes if you don't do this by 2040 it will be like this by 2050 it will be like this um, that has maybe created a sense in but the general rising awareness that we know what's going to happen. But a lot of these essays really display that, that we don't, we really don't. And that's actually kind of a harder space to get into. Like once we get beyond the, um, accept like this is happening, I think where I've been struggling to get to is, and we don't know entirely what that means. You write at one point, like we don't know what our relationship is going to be, but it's going to be uncanny. Like we're, it's certainly going to be bizarre. And as you said, like wonder might be a part of that, like surprising resilience or um, there, there could be still a lot of surprises and like making peace with that unknown, I think is a, a new part of um, like those of us who are, have, have accepted the reality of it for, you know, at least a decade or so. And now are realizing like, what does that mean for my future and my child's future and like spiritually psychically like for my soul what does it mean to not not be able to envision a future what do you think about that, that I think theory? I think that's really well put and I and and I, I think your 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 insight about the denialism the damage of denialism is which I should say you know I just was looking this up today um, according to the Yale communication that Yale has a series of uh, public opinion polling about this question and um, 2020 it's still more than 25% of the American population doesn't believe 
you know, believe in global warming. Um, although that marks a huge improvement, you know, over it was more than 40% 10 years ago. Um, but, but I think you're right that the, this, the binary question, you know, forcing scientists to summon the most basic evidence to show over and over again, this reality that we all understood um, has not, has not just done the damage of, of, um, you know, befuddling this huge percentage of the population about the question and delaying the politics, you know, that would be bad enough, but it's also had this simplifying effect on the conversations around climate. And I would say even more, more broadly, you know, around environmental damage and, and, you know, reconfiguration. Um, so that, yes, it's, 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 it's almost infantilized the way we talk about the issue. Like it, it, this is something that I would always be confronted with, with, with losing earth. There was always a question about, well, you know, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And, you know, so much of climate activism in the last decades has been, you know, poised on that axis where you have sort of two camps often where, you know, one saying we need to scare, we need to tell people how bad this is. So they'll, understand that we need to act and the other side saying well if you scare people too much they'll check out and sort of becomes a marketing strategy like what's the best way to sell the idea which may be a useful exercise if you're an activist but I find for writers and for people who are trying to wrap their heads around this new this you know facts of these facts of life um it's 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 sort of damaging I I think it it prevents us from getting at some of these more complex issues and um and you're right, it's, you know, oil and gas industry, like there are real villains who did this, but it also, I also think we should challenge ourselves to think a little bit more deeply about, you know, what does it mean to live in this time? And, and as you said, it's not just about what policies should we enact. Um, it's also about, you know, how do we make sense of the way this is touching our lives now, you know, and not just if you live in a near wildfires or floods as you and I do res respectively. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, how does this change the choices we make about our future? I think that the, you know, the decision about having children is sort of the, the sharp, you know, the, the, the tip of the spear there. And that, I think that's the first visceral thing that people at least like our age or, or younger, I guess, um, feel. I mean, I would, that was the question I would remember talking, doing events for Losing Earth. I, I was surprised that every single event somebody asked, you know, do you think, either is it wrong to have it is it unethical to have a child knowing what we know um or or would be grandparents saying something like i'm i'm worried because my children don't want to have um uh kids and and i feel like that is a, has become a kind of stand-in for a much larger sort of country of 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 thought that's been sort of hidden which is how do we bring this information into our life? How do we bring this knowledge of what's coming, of what's already happening um, into our personal life? And I don't think we've done a very good job of, of, of asking some of those questions, let alone trying to puzzle through them. Um, and I feel, and that sort of brings, I think, one around to the, to the literature, because I think that's where we're writing, whether you know, fictional or nonfiction, I think has a role to play because I, I, I do feel you know, not that we're going to solve the world's ills, but it's at least allows, it, it opens a door for people to try to ask some of these questions for, for themselves. Um, yeah. And so those are, that's very much where I see where I'm operating. And I think that your work does so well too, is it, it opens that door and, and allows for a deeper conversation beyond just, 
you know, what should be in the, in the bill. Yes. Yes. And I have evidence of that theory, actually. Oh, because, I want to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking with, with my beloved about doing this event with you. And I mentioned um, the piece that you have about the starfish, this massive starfish, mysterious die off that happened all up and down the West coast of North America. And, um, and, you know, I don't think, I think it's fine that I share this with all the anonymous people out there, but he said um, that he was living in Santa Cruz when that happened. Oh, wow. And the epicenter basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and that, um, that, 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 the starfish were the metaphor that his like first wife used to um, tell him that he, she wanted to dissolve their marriage. She said like, I am like those starfish. Like I have a starfish heart and I'm like destroying myself. And I don't know why this is happening to me. And it um, like, I didn't really understand this. And I don't think he really understood it until like, like, reading your work the way that um like a well-told story about what's happening can better help us understand what's happening to us like it's beyond an allegory it's beyond like I saw a sad thing about an animal and I'm also sad it's because I think um scientists at at UC Santa Cruz saw this phenomenon and they named it and then they told you about it and then you told us about it and then it becomes this way to understand um what's happening to us because what's happening to the starfish is happening to us right like we are all if if i've learned nothing else through this pandemic it's this like horrific interconnectedness of all living things and um it 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 goes beyond it, it like when we understand what's happening to the starfish we understand what's happening to ourselves on like such an important level and it's very hard i'm sure you've gotten that feedback a lot about your work that it can be hard knowledge to deliver to people but it's also deeply important because it's true and so many of the tenants of you know environmental groups from the Sierra Club to Extinction Rebellion, their first demand is tell the truth because it, it's deeply painful to not know why you're in pain, right? The, when you write about the whole Porter Ranch fiasco, this poisoning, it doesn't really matter if you're sick because of a toxin or you're sick because of the fear of a toxin to have been suppressed it really costs us deeply. I mean, like I come from rural Nevada where most people purport not to believe in, in global warming and yet they certainly behave like people who are living in a collapsing environment with all of the fear and the pain and the illness that, that attends to it. So I think it's really important to do what, what, what we writers can do with the facts of this, you know, that translation from the scientists to the writers, to, to the readers and the feelers can maybe even like heal in a way. Yeah, I mean, or at least allow like the process of interrogation that's necessary or exploration or that, mm -hmm. you know, to, to reach, to, to move beyond just this feeling of being creeped out. I mean, the, the, mm -hmm. both of those stories, I mean, are what's what interested me about them and 
and first of all, you or, or your partner should write the story about that. That's incredible. Um, and about the starfish. I mean, the, so the starfish were, were you know, for, for people who don't know about it, they were started tearing their arms off um, all on the Pacific coast. And, and there was this, um, it's called the wasting. And, and there was a sense that this had to be because of global warming, of course, but they couldn't really prove it. And there were inconsistencies in the data. There were, you know, sea stars in places where there was cold water who were committing suicide, and then in warm water where they weren't. And and so they they really couldn't figure out what was happening. And that it was even more terrifying, of course. You know that, yeah. um, you know that. But but I think what was reflected in in the conversations I had with people was just this deep sense of being uh, unnerved by it because they they the stars had been this symbol of of beauty of a certain kind of child childhood innocence because it's you know popular pastime in these beautiful um beaches along the coast for for kids to go with their their parents tide pool pooling and and look at sea stars and so you'd have these kids would come away you know sobbing watching these stars mutilate themselves um and the porter ranch story is is sort of is similar in a way in that it's it's also that it was a climate disaster. I mean, one of the great climate disasters um, of recent history, where this um, the Santa Susana Mountains, which you've also written about, um, were started leaking out um, natural gas, which had been it, they'd been used for for storing hollowed out um, by. Um, oil uh, drills over decades and then had been filled up with natural gas and there was a leak and the gas started rushing out and it it took three months before they could cap it it was sort of like a, a atmospheric deep water horizon and during that time the leak alone produced more um, greenhouse gas emissions than that of most developed you know small developed countries and in the world um, and yet nobody in Porter Ranch was really concerned about the climate aspect of it they were all um worried that they were getting poisoned somehow by the gas and whether they were or not is a matter a matter of legal dispute and and lawsuits and all the rest um but it that feels to me it touches on what what you're talking about which is this idea that something's deeply wrong um we can't quite put our finger on it we know the basic idea and we also can't quite put a figure on our finger on where where this is going to take us, how bad is it going to get, um, or what kind of dramatic interventions will be required to just you know to reverse it or stop stop the damage, um, and that th that's why I think those stories interest me a lot more than just sort of um, you know this a natural disaster a typical natural disaster story or a typical climate story where you you sort of it's pretty clear from the beginning, you know, from the headline, what's happened, who's to blame, um, and what's, you know, what's going to happen. And these stories, there's, it taps into, I think, more of this anxiety of our, of our time. I mean, I felt like, you know, it, it felt, this Porter Ranch, like, felt like white noise of, you know, a climate, a, a white noise type climate story, um, mm -hmm. where just everybody's, disturbed and it, and it it forces it forces it forced everybody in the community basically inward um, and their anxieties ended up reflecting not necessarily their exposure as you said but but whatever was going on in their lives at the time who they were it forced them inward and I think in that way that's that's what this this you know that's what climate change and that's what this 
larger environmental transformation is doing to us. I think it's forcing us inward. Right. Yeah. I was just thinking about like all of the moments that I've had during this pandemic where I feel like simultaneously, like I wish I hadn't read so many of these doomer books and novels, but also really grateful because I didn't feel as lost or shocked or as bewildered. I thought, oh, this is white noise. It's an airborne toxic event or um, hearing stories about, um, you know, the storms in Texas recently and hearing stories about people filling up their bathtubs, which is the first scene in the road by Cormac McCarthy, right? right. Filling up your bathtub. Um, and I, it seems to me like there's probably no one who's less surprised by the, the pandemic than the environmentalist writer. And I don't know if that makes us like, you know, just, just, um, you know, masochistic or, or what, but I have felt like I, I spent many years feeling really like confused. Like, why am I doing this? Like, why, why listen to Silent Spring on tape while driving down California? Why look up how many of those chemicals that Rachel Carson um, brought to our attention have been regulated? And what are the teeth with those regulations? Why do this to yourself, right? But now I feel like I've kind of pushed through and I felt some like strange comfort, but I've also felt kind of alone. I mean, not when I talk to people like you, but do you feel that way? Like, what is the, this is a pretty personal question, but you can't see the audience anyway. So um, like, what is the like psych, psychic or spiritual toll for you in doing this work and like listening to these stories and getting the exact right words in the exact right order to, to illuminate the, this like profound, um, uncanny, bizarre, like, uh, rare I'd say like your your gaze like the way you look at this stuff is pretty rare and I guess I assume when I was writing it because I felt less lonely that there was some relationship to that loneliness that you're trying to like break through what's yeah. it like to like write this stuff I mean I think I, f I feel the way you described a bit I mean it I find you know all of these stories before I certainly before they were I knew I was writing a book or that they would be a book or um, really even before I knew the the language to use to to describe what I was writing about um, they they started with a sense of um, of the uncanny of of just feeling uncomfortable um, so that's why I was drawn to a story like the starfish where no one really could say what was happening and people were just very disturbed um, or or Porter Ranch um, much more than you know other sort of stories of natural disasters sort of left me cold as a writer I mean of course I'm reading it um, but but to write about um, and so I think it 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 comes I guess personally it comes out of a desire to resolve um, something that's bothering me it's you know it's like a you know a rock in your shoe or something and it something feels wrong or, or strange um and uh you know certainly the case for um you know going back my novel as against tomorrow is about a, a, a 
risk analyst whose job is to, to come up with worst case scenarios. And I, I felt almost euphoric writing that book because it forced me to go into every, the worst possible, you know, not just climate related, but every kind of worst case scenario. And, um, and I thought that was a thrill. It, it sort of allowed me to go through it and, and think through it and, and decide, well, you know, what, what am I really, what do I really care about in life? Basically, it was sort of this mm-hmm. like pretty mm-hmm. profound centering exercise and, and it, it forces you to put things in perspective a little bit. Um, but yeah, with these things, I mean, it's also not necessarily things that are uncanny or, or, or creepy in a threatening way. It could also be something like, um, you know, chickens that, are, you know, chicken meat that comes from a laboratory um, that doesn't require uh, killing any chickens like this, this company just mm-hmm. that I wrote about. And I wrote about this father and father and a son who in two generations go from, uh, you know, the father butchering ch- uh, chickens in his, the basement of a grocery in central Illinois to the son working at this lab in San Francisco, developing like perfectly perfect replicas of chicken meat using cell cultures grafted from a chicken. Um, and so like, that's a good example of something where, I'm still sort of disturbed by the idea. Um, it still seems like on a very human level, visceral level, like kind of gross, the idea of eating like this chicken chicken breast that's or chicken nuggets made in these labs. And yet the the ethical argument for doing so is is actually really strong. Um, you know, the climate argument, the as well, the animal rights argument and all, all the rest. And so, that's a, that's you know that's a situation where there's there's this still it still feels uncanny it still feels unsettled and unsettling, um, but it's not necessarily because it's portends doom. It's more just it's more the sort of vision of where we're going that that I think we haven't really adjusted to um, personally. So I, it's almost a form of exorcism, I guess. Is the question? Is that mm-hmm. do you you feel that way when you're writing as well as reading these things, or is it just when you're doing the research and freaking yourself out (laughs) no I do feel like there's a nightmare therapy quality to the writing as well like it just feels better to have it out there and I feel less alone when I read it I I also have been thinking a lot about um well you mentioned with the starfish like that you know that that they're described as sort of that they're suicidal, that they're like self-harming. And um, that has been a really bracing way for me to understand the moment because, um, you know, like like in your last book, In Losing Earth, like you, you show us how like we can't really um, today, you know, like two decades into the 21st century, the story that like, mistakes were made, but we didn't know um, that that has fallen apart. And now it's like a known um, harm and it is um, baked into the system. And I, I, you're like drawn to these um, like complicated and, and um, slippery stories, but there are some true, true villains in this book. When you describe them, I think you say like the psychotic greed of of corporations, and I think we see that most palpably in the Dark Waters yeah. piece. Where, if I understand it right, and maybe you could just like tease us out for for the audience, but um, as I understand it, right, that that um, 
DuPont not only knew that this the toxic substance that they were using in Teflon and all of these other products, but when, you know, 3M said, we are not going to make this anymore. And so they opened up a factory to make it because it was making them a billion dollars a year in profit. And they calculated, they had meetings, you know, the lawyer that you, you follow heroically played by, I believe, Mark Ruffalo, right. Who I would watch, you know, mm-hmm. like lick envelopes, but um, they, that they um, decided, well, we're already going to be charged these nominal um, penalties by these sort of um, toothless regulations. So we might as what what we should do and what we must do by the logic of shareholders is to make even more of this stuff. And basically, it's like a smash and grab job, right? Like while we um, and it seems to me sometimes that these corporations just didn't think that they would get a, away with it for so long. Sometimes, you know, like the um, the surely the jig will be up at any minute. So let's just kind of try to accumulate as much wealth as possible. And nope, <laughs> like it just seems like completely run away. Am, am I? Um, oh, I think, I think there's a, there's definitely a parallel there between DuPont and, um, and the oil and gas companies where, yeah, what begins as sort of a hush up job becomes a kind of like platform and, 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 you know, a decades long practice. I mean, in, in, uh, DuPont, I guess, parenthetically, DuPont also was a player in, in the 80s period because they were the, the ones manufacturing most of CFCs, which were the subject of the, the Montreal Protocol um, to protect the ozone layer. And it was only when DuPont realized it could make more money from manufacturing the replacement um, for the greenhouse gas gases um, that they decided to support Montreal Protocol. And then Reagan uh, came along as well. But yeah, the story of uh, the dark water story. I mean, it's it's one of the most. I mean, you did put your f- finger on it. It's, it is the one story where there's there's a very clear villain and 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 really quite dastardly. Um, and there's a real hero, which is this this lawyer Rob Balad. And and it's one of the most nefarious stories I think in in of uh, you know criminality in American corporate history, recent recent corporate history, um, where Dupont started using these man-made chemicals. Um, as early as the 19 early 1950s uh, to make thing Teflon and other non-stick surfaces, you know, used in, in just about every, you know, aspect of our economy um, and, and commerce, you know, from cars and airplanes to uh, raincoats and, and, you know, pizza boxes. And they knew very early on that it was um, toxic, that it was, it was causing birth de- defects and workers at the factory um, a bunch of testicular cancers, all kinds of horrible things. And they continued on with it and they might've gotten away with it if it weren't for the work of a corporate lawyer, um, a corporate lawyer for the defense, someone whose job it was uh, to, to defend chemical companies named Rob Balot, conservative guy, um, sort of non-expressive. I mean, that, that Mark Ruffalo could turn him in I mean, it's an incredible performance because he he sort of pulls out this sort of inner intense inner turmoil in, in Balat, which is profound, but usually doesn't rise to the surface. And and he he took the case because he got a call from this cattle farmer, poor cattle farmer in West Virginia, Wilbur Tennant, who um, had a family connection to Balat, and and Balat at first assumed that um, this cattle this cattle farmer was sort of 
crazy or confused. He was saying that DuPont was killing all his cows, that DuPont ran a factory um, right next to his cattle ranch, and that that um, poison from the landfill was seeping into the creek that his cattle drank from, and they were dying from it, and acting you know, homicidal, the cattle and, and doing crazy, crazy things on the sort of not too dissimilar from the, um, the sea stars. And uh, Balat using what he knew, you know, he was this inside guy, knew, knowing how these big chemical companies worked, he was able to figure out what was going on. And, you know, he realizes, uh, you know, sequentially that it's not just the cattle farmer uh and the cattle that are being poisoned but it's the whole community um that the poison is in the water and in the air and in the land um and then he realizes that it's actually in all of us that it's it's so ubiquitous pfoa and, and this class of what are called forever chemicals have so infiltrated our society that it's become part of our biological inheritance that it's in all of our bloodstream it's passed down from mother to child through the umbilical cord um and and yes dupont not only did they not not you know fix it but even when presented by their scientists with alternatives um they didn't do what dupont had done in the 80s with with cfcs and swap it out they they stayed put because they worried that any kind of alteration of their formulas could affect the bottom line and as you said they're making a billion dollars per year and so um you know, I think what beca- what starts as a story about DuPont and about this heroic lawyer ultimately becomes a story about all of us because we're all the we're all, we've all been victimized um, by this, and and um, you know, there's not even any natural any animal in the world that we've tested that doesn't have the stuff in their bloodstream, um, and so it. I think Balat, though he's a very conservative guy and you know certainly far from an environmental activist um he he becomes a kind of avatar for us all and that he's disillusioned you know his old way of seeing the world is 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 you know ripped out from under him and he um you know becomes angry uh and then uh determined to hold dupont responsible and he's still fighting the fight decades you know a couple decades later he's he's now suing dupont um in a class action suit in which we're all represented. It's for every um, every citizen of, of the United States um, is, is in the class. And and I think, you know, all of us are not Rob lot, but I think all of us do have a moment where I think we come to terms with the scale of what's happened and and the 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 extent of our our um, the the romantic you know myths that we had about how the world works and how the natural world um, works and the sanctity of the natural world. And when we come to realize that the extent of our intervention, um, I think it forces a lot of difficult, uh, a lot of difficult conversations and and a difficult reimagining of, you know, what, what is the best path forward where um, you can't really step outside of it anymore um, that one has to take some responsibility. Right. Yeah. The days of like the back to the land style retreat are long gone. Yeah. I mean, I think of like the, the most, the most like extreme version of that, um, E.O. Wilson's idea of half earth where you protect half Mm -hmm. of the planet for wilderness um, is I'm sympathetic to it. On the other hand, I think it's important. What people don't often think about is that 
that kind of designation is not like laissez-faire. It's actually would require this extreme mobilization of militaries of, you know, accords, like you have to then protect all that land. You have to also um, manage it in the same way that we manage like municipal parks um, and make sure that, you know, that exotic species don't go where they're not supposed to go or, you know, invasive um, species and, and so on. And so it's actually what seems like it's this fantasy of, of letting things manage themselves is actually a heightened form of management of, of what, you know, we still call wilderness. Mm -hmm. And it, maybe you can fill me in on this because I don't genuinely don't know the answer to it, but it does seem, you know, in your, at the end of Dark Waters, you have that gesture that Balat um, represents all of us who have these chemicals within us, but also all non-human um, things. But um, non-human things don't really have rights. We don't really have much of a, of a commons. I understand that there are some um, interesting lawsuits in the work by you know children who are suing on behalf of like their future selves and and things like that but it does seem like among among one of the like radical reorientations we might have to consider is like what um who has rights who has like standing to be um that you would have to have real um like the law was is in a way working as it is was was designed to work you know but there would have to be a, an expansion of the, that so that it wasn't just like um an like powerful image but there there's actually a deeper like more severe cost for harming destroying the living things that we also need to continue to live Right. Yeah. I was, it's funny. I was asked about that the other day, you know, should we expand legal rights for um, non-human entities? Um, and that, yeah, our children's trust is an interesting version of that. Um, it's, uh, I, I guess I'm agnostic about it. I mean, I, I feel like on one hand, the laws we have are pretty good, but the enforcement is terrible. Um, and, you know, in Balad's case, I think of, you know, this moment where he's, you know, he's this one man show just like completely isolated in his firm. Um, no one will talk to him because he's taking on DuPont. Um, Surrounded by boxes. <laughs> yeah. And um, they, and he, he uh, f discovers that the people he's dealing with at the, at the West Virginia EPA, um, Department of Natural Resources, are the same people you know, literally to a, to a person uh, as, as the DuPont, who is dealing with at DuPont, that the lawyers from DuPont had gone over to West Virginia and they, they would go back and forth. And now, you know, it's easy, I think, for someone to sort of look at West, a place like West Virginia and say, oh, well, that's, you know, corrupt. It wouldn't happen elsewhere. But a version of that does happen elsewhere, everywhere. Um, you know, it, it also, so, so, you know, do we need, do we necessarily need a new law, new laws? I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea. Um, I guess I'm not enough of a legal scholar to, to, to answer it, but it, it also, you know, I think also of the, the case of, you know, Louisiana um, and, and, you know, California where you live also has an element of this where 
you know, Louisiana is thought of as this tends to be thought of nationally as this, you know, really backwards place or backwards looking place at least. Um, but we have the most sort of forward looking and largest climate infrastructure plan, a climate change mitigation plan in the world, which is this, this plan to rebuild the coast. And, you know, and this, it's, it's not called that here. No one says that, you know, no one says climate change in the state, but, but that's what it is. And it has almost unanimous support. Um, and yet there's a small group of people who are viciously opposed to it, who are the people who are most in harm's way at the Southern part of, of uh, the Delta, who are fishermen, who are worried about efforts to um, sort of retrain the flow of the Mississippi River to, to create these new diversions um, will destroy their their livelihood in the short term, even if in the long term it it's, it helps to protect the land. Um, and I think how I think of how we're, you know, we're having some difficult conversations here locally about what do you do, um, you know, with those people. Uh, what do you what do you do with the people um, who are going to suffer even even you know due to the most prudent um, long term plan, the, the, the kind of thinking that we're going to need, you know, in the decades ahead, um, you know, how do we deal with the, the, the smaller subset of people who will be damaged? Because um, the damage is real, they will lose, you know, their livelihoods, will, these communities will vanish and a culture will vanish. Um, and, yet if, and yet, you know, 99.9% .9 of the state would say, well, it's, that's a price we have to pay. And so I feel like in, you know, in some of these ways, um, you know, that's where we're going and, and, in, in some unlikely places, like we're already there. Um, but, but yeah, the question is, how do we, how do we have that conversation more globally? You know, how, how, how are we all, how do we all put ourselves into those sort of moral tangles that we're only seeing, you know, here and there at this moment? Um, I wonder if you think we should open it up to questions now. Sure. If there, what if there's, think? Uh, yeah, we've got a couple of questions here. So you've talked a, a bit about like what we're up against and what the, you know, what the struggle is that we're dealing with to kind of realize what our current situation is. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you think we will cope with that or how we are coping with it. How you've seen, if, if you've seen uh, people or movements doing a good job or an interesting job of sort of reimagining the future? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think there are the, I mean, a story I, I tell in the book that that's, I think speaks to that is the, the, the de-extinction folks, which, you know, it's a, a group primarily led by this group Revive and Restore, which is um, part of Stuart Brand's Long Now Foundation. Um, and they are sort of, you know, famous for trying to bring back the woolly mammoth and for trying to bring back the passenger pigeon, once the most populous bird um, in the continent, if not the world. And what's, what's fascinating to me about what they do is that, you know, unlike a lot of the sort of, you know, typical, I guess, Silicon Valley type folks um, who are uh, enamored with new technologies and new gadgets, um, you know, they also are, of course, they're using this extremely high tech, you know, genetic engineering technology to try to bring these species back or, or recreate new versions of the species would be more accurate. Um, but their, their way of thinking 
um, when you talk to them is really informed by essentially the foundational, you know, aspects of, of environmental thought. I mean, they're, they go back to sort of mid 19th century thinking about um, ecosystems and, and ecology. And, and so their, their ideas are not to, their idea is not just to bring back the woolly mammoth, um, you know, because it would be cool, but it, it's, it's to bring them back to restore uh, the ecosystem of the Arctic steppe. And, you know, the reason to bring that back the passenger pigeon is to restore um, the North American, uh, the vitality of the North American forests. Um, and there are theories about why these species will do that, why they're crucial species in the, in the, um, in these ecosystems. But I think the most important thing the group is doing is they, they're essentially have created a, a kind of value system. You know, they're, they're talking not only about what ecosystems they want to restore, but what they, what kind of relationship with the land they're trying to restore. They're talking about, you know, what Aldo Leopold called a land ethic. Um, and that's very central to all they do. Um, and so they make their decision, their decisions are guided by a certain framework, you know, how essentially it's how, how will this um, help to make um, ecosystems healthier? Um, now you can disagree with some of their judgments and so on, but at least they're guided by that. It feels very different to me than like, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos saying, we're going to go to the moon because it's, we want to escape, I guess. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, and, and so I, I, I think increasingly, you know, we, these technologies are so far beyond what I think most of us even are able to understand. I mean, that's something I kept finding again and again, that where one thinks the technology is, is like really we're like 15 years behind in the popular imagination of where, where the actual, you know, the work is, is happening now. And so what's, what's crucially, as crucial as the technologies themselves is, you know, what is going to guide our use of them. And um, I think it will take um, groups like that, as well as, um, you know, environmental groups and, and advocacy groups um, to try to have those conversations too. Um, try to, you have to be in conversation with these uh, technologies and not sort of blanket, have a blanket opposition because they're, they're coming and we want to, you know, I think one wants to be part of a, uh, the decision-making process about how to use them responsibly. Uh, yeah, they're, they're certainly coming. Yeah. I mean, we have a <clears throat> tremendously ambitious new administration. So there's a sense of, um, I've been working with some groups in the Mojave Desert who are really taking a close look at solar, which many um, environmentally mi minded folks are really pretty um, open to, and I was too, but the insistence that solar be done in an intentional way, um, the, the Biden administration has been really um, sort of worryingly eager to put solar on public lands, probably because it will be easier for them to do it, but that there's a difference, this, these groups of the, I'm thinking of like Basin and Range Watch out of Beatty, Nevada. And they're reminding us that there's a difference between um, land that has already been, you know, developed and used and, um, you know, uh, Joshua tree forests that are sequestering carbon and that are tortoise habitat and that have um, that are intact that not all of the desert is a huge wasteland and that 
if Walmart were to put solar panels on every single one of their facilities in their parking lots, we'd be really like, that would be like a major um, impact or wasted um, alfalfa fields that like we've been here before. So there, I think my fear is that in the eagerness to do something like that, we will basically just reach for the close at hand solutions that are um, like you said, Nat, like, more than 15 like 150 years old the idea of like oh we'll just use all this extra land like we don't have extra land actually we don't have extra tortoises or extra carbon sequestering um yucca plants that are 600 years old in in some cases you know so that they're they're um like insisting on um that land ethic and and um you know like we began this event with a land acknowledgement and that's not an empty gesture in replacement of land like nothing can replace land that was stolen but land but it is i think to acknowledge that that human beings have lived on this continent since time immemorial in a a balanced way and that there can be simultaneously a looking back towards that um, land ethic that was informed by the land itself and looking forward with um, all the knowledge that we have that we can, you know, make a bunny glow. <laughs> right. And I, and I think it's also, I think important, I think one thing we're like realizing, starting to realize now is also looking back, you have to define what you're looking, looking back to, you know, if you're, a lot of like this, the our sort of environmental records in this country um, begin in 1930s, and of course that's you know relative to the rest of history is the most degraded possible moment you know to begin. So for us, and of course we've fallen very far since then, but but you know is that what we want to get back to, or do we want to go back to the 1830s, or do we want to go go back to 5000 BC? You know they're they're all very different. Um, realities and, and very different, you know, relationship between the people who are on the land and the animals and the and the forest, and so it it forces you to think a bit more rigorously about um, restoration. The idea of restoration. It's mm-hmm. we also have to choose what we want to restore, and I think that kind of intentionality over over in, in uh, intervention in in nature makes a lot of conservationists, particularly sort of old, a certain kind of older um, era of environmentalists um, uncomfortable um, because it's a lot easier just to say, leave things alone than it is to say, no, let's make everything the way it was in you know, this particular year or let's create a new version that, that fulfills the same goals you know, of, of you know, ecological diversity say, um, but maybe doesn't resemble anything that ever existed here. Well, I think I'll um, end on this one question. Are there, are there formative experiences in either of your lives uh, that you can identify that formed the seeds of your unique sensitivity to the natural world or like a moment of epiphany where you realized you were sort of called to bear witness um, or as you said, Claire, to translate uh, some of these, these issues? I'll start because I have one close at hand. Um, yeah, like m- my my parents ran a little rock shop and a museum on the edge of Death Valley 
and um, I grew up there going to work with my mom. And um, <clears throat> I think I just wanted to originally write like versions of like local color and honestly like manifest destiny propaganda style stuff that I was reading in her rock shop. And I just wanted to romp around in beautiful places and tell people about them. But the thing is that like when I went to romp, um, what I found I was holding up against that, um, you know, like romantic ideal and, and a, like a politically utilitarian idea of the American West as basically like our um, spiritual uh, Eden, you know, like the place that we would find fulfillment. And, and what I found instead was like a, a lot of pain and a lot of sadness and a lot of ruin and, um, and so I just basically like used the tools that I saw like Mary Austin or William Carruthers and these other um, like uh, adventurers using, um, but completely kind of inverted the tone really. And, and, and I didn't, I understood that to be a, a deep act of love. And um, I think witness is exactly the right word for it. I, I just wanted to invite people to, to see the places that that um, had nourished me as something other than a wasteland, I think. Yeah, and I think you'd succeed really marvelously. I mean, I, I before I read you, I probably was guilty of all the sort of worst biases about say Nevada um, and, and, you know, um, it really opened, opened my mind up to the complicated realities of the place, um, not to mention the history. Um, I guess for me, there was no one formative experience, but I grew up in, in New York City and um, I, you know, I, I, the closest thing I got to nature, I guess, was Central Park or um, a baseball game, maybe, um, the expanse of, a, of, you know, Shea Stadium. Um, and in the summers though, when I got old enough, I started uh, to spend summers in Maine and, and go on canoe trips and um, hikes and, and things like that. I think because my parents realized I needed some other landscape um, to, to be in. And I feel like something about that knocked open something in me, just I think, especially camping out, being out in wilderness, being away um, from other people for fairly long periods of time, you know, a week or two, 10 day trips. Um, it felt like um, entering some other universe or some other world. And I, I was totally, you know, as a, as an adolescent, I think taken with, with all of that. And um, I think whenever I, I feel like that feeling that, that sense of awe um, and wonder that I experienced then is, is, something I still seek out in, in my life. It's something I, you know, I seek out for my, my children now that they're getting old enough for camping trips. And, um, you know, it's sort of your basic American, um, you know, nature I ideal, but it was, it was very, uh, it hit a profound chord in me. And, um, and I think it changed the way I, I see the world. Nathaniel Rich and Claire Vay Watkins had this Town Hall Seattle discussion on April 5th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, 
kuow.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.